Your contributions help keep Living on Earth on the air. Please give generously at LOE.org today. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Ashley Ahern. Welcome back to our special broadcast with EarthFix, marking the 40th anniversary of the Clean Water Act. We're going to take a look ahead now to the future of the Clean Water Act and some of the challenges and emerging threats to clean water. Despite the progress that's been made, there are some chemicals that the Clean Water Act never saw coming. Chemicals that can be found in household and personal care products, among other places. Some of them have been shown to mimic the hormones in our bodies, and they can slip through sewage treatment. Some research shows that's a problem for fish. Scientists here in the Northwest first realized there was something weird going on about 10 years ago. I visited the lab of Lyndall Johnson. She's a fisheries biologist and toxicologist for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. She told me about the time she and some of her colleagues were out near Seattle's waterfront sampling English sole. That's a flatfish that's common here. And this was when we noticed that these fish in Elliott Bay, when all of the other fish had completed spawning, ready to go home, and it's all over for them, the Elliott Bay fish were still ripe, and they still had eggs that they had not yet spawned. The team went back and sampled more fish around Puget Sound and found even creepier results. Some of the male fish were producing a protein called vitiligenin. You don't want to see that in males. That's Jim West, a senior scientist with the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife. He was out on the water with Lyndall Johnson when they found the weird fish. Vitiligenin is a protein used to make egg yolks, so you find it in mature females, but never in males. So it's an indication that they've been exposed to something, some chemical, that is essentially feminizing them. These fish weren't dying. From the outside, they didn't even look different. But there were striking changes going on inside them. The team took more samples. The results? Almost half of the 49 male English sole they tested on the Seattle waterfront were producing the female egg yolk protein. The researchers found similar results in juvenile Chinook salmon they tested at that site. But the fish here are not alone. The U.S. Geological Survey collected bass from more than 100 rivers around the country. A third of those fish showed signs of feminization and intersex characteristics. Don Tillett is a toxicologist with the USGS in Columbia, Missouri. Mainly what we saw was oocytes growing in what would be otherwise normal testicular tissues. Testes with eggs in them. Testes with eggs in them, exactly. Pinpointing the exact chemicals that are causing this feminization and intersex development has been the biggest challenge for scientists so far. But many believe a group of chemicals known as endocrine disruptors are to blame. They're sort of like hormone imposters. They act like natural hormones, estrogen or testosterone, for example, and mess with the body's natural hormonal messaging system. Bisphenol A is probably the most well-known chemical in this family. You'll find it in certain plastics, the liners of canned goods, epoxies, even kids' toys. Synthetic estrogen from birth control pills has also been shown to feminize fish. These chemicals get into our bodies and then end up in wastewater. Till it says that wastewater, even though it's been treated, carries some of the chemicals into nearby waterways. It's not surprising that certain urban areas, certain locations uh, downstream from wastewater treatment plants are some of the most common locations where, where we can find intersex. The problem, Steve, is that even the most modern wastewater treatment facilities aren't specifically designed to remove this new class of chemicals. That's right. I talked with Catherine Baer about that and other issues facing the Clean Water Act right now. 
Catherine Baer is the Senior Director of the Clean Water Program at American Rivers. And I asked her how we're doing in dealing with these emerging chemical contaminants that are getting into our waterways. The area of, of emerging contaminants and hormone disrupting chemicals is an area that the Clean Water Act so far you know, doesn't cover because when the Clean Water Act was written, of course, those had not been recognized as threats. So I think right now we're really in the stage that they are suspected threats, but a lot of research is going on to figure out how these contaminants affect people and fish and wildlife at very low levels and in combination over time. And, and those sorts of determinations are very difficult to make and require a lot of science. At the same time, from a sort of precautionary perspective, it would be good to go ahead and sort of proactively address some of those threats to the extent we can, at least reduce the sources, um, increase the treatment where it's possible in the meantime. And again, because that will require some investment, I think there's been hesitancy to do too much before more information is available. Um, So it is another area that the Clean Water Act and the Safe Drinking Water Act are really gonna have to grapple with in the coming years. So, in other words, we're really not protected from those chemicals now? No. So, when you look at threats to clean water in this country now, what do you see at the top of the list? Uh, where should efforts be focused? Those big single-source polluters, or, or, or should that focus be shifting, perhaps? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a, of a half-and-half answer. We've made so many strides on the point source area that certainly we do need to focus on the non-point source pollution. But before moving there, I think it's really important to note that we really do still have over 850 billion gallons of pollution in the form of sewage, either partially treated or not treated at all, going into our rivers and streams every year. So we still need to make sure we invest in our water infrastructure, um, which is an area we really are about to fall back on And with population growth and climate change, we need to keep our eye on that ball for the point sources. But I think it's true that the area where we really have opportunities to make gains is to try to figure out how we do better control polluted stormwater runoff from urban areas. And that's a really great area, a really rich area to be working because the science and the practitioners and the local governments have really learned a lot over the last 20 years about how to better do that. And so we have a great opportunity now to actually embed that within the Clean Water Act policies that we have to make it more widespread and more effective for clean water. What's missing, in your opinion, from the Clean Water Act? It's 40 years old. If you could update it, what would you do? The big issue for the Clean Water Act that stands out is the fact that there's a gap for agriculture. And I think over the long term, we really need to find a way to sort of fairly address agricultural sources of pollution, and not necessarily all of them, but certainly the ones that are commensurate or equal to sort of industrial pollution in other categories. So hog farms, major chicken operations, and bring those into the folds of the act. So there is more equity among the pollution sources that are creating problems for our streams and rivers and can make waters more healthy across the country. How effective is the Clean Water Act in dealing with uh, the present reality of, of increased drought and climate disruption? I'm thinking, for example, of this conflict involving the Missouri River Basin. Uh, folks downstream in the Mississippi want more water for barge traffic, and folks to the west would like to see that water diverted into the Colorado, where the water is very short. It's a great point. Uh, When people think of climate change, they don't always think about water, but in point of fact, climate is hitting our water resources, already is, um, and it's hitting them sort of first and worst with more frequent intense floods and droughts throughout the country, which is really creating more extremes that's gonna further sort of stress our water resources, as you mentioned, um, on the Missouri and in many other places. So at this point, we, 
quite honestly, are not that well equipped um, to face climate change and its impact on water resources. I think moving forward, and it's another good area where the Clean Water Act could be a bit stronger, trying to think about the future and how our uh, approaches to clean and safe and reliable water could be more resilient and how do we build in safeguards to systems. Um, so the flooding is a good example. If we could better use our floodplains to actually buffer some of the floods and droughts, and that works both to reduce floods in wet times, but also to help soak up and recharge water into our rivers in dry times by doing that both with floodplains and our sort of small streams, the capillaries of our watersheds. Those are going to be really important approaches. Catherine Baird, tell me about uh, any of the current Supreme Court or, or other court cases relating to the Clean Water Act that you're watching particularly closely now and why. Yeah, I think it's interesting. The Supreme Court has definitely taken on a number of environmental cases over the last year. And there are several that are sort of interesting. There was one that was um, argued several weeks ago. This was the L.A. County Flood Control District versus the Natural Resources Defense Council. And it was a very confusing case factually, but sort of at its core, it was about who's responsible, who's liable for polluted stormwater runoff in municipal areas. And so that will be a very interesting one to watch because it's really important to make sure that polluters are held accountable for the exceedances of pollution permits if they are contributing. So that's sort of at the core of the Clean Water Act. So that's important. Another case I think is interesting, it hasn't really hasn't been heard at all, so it's just at the entry level, um, is a case questioning whether it's legal to do something called water quality trading under the Clean Water Act, and this is a case brought by Food and Water Watch. And it's interesting because there's a growing interest in trying to figure out new ways to control non-point source pollution, as we discussed, and one of them is, is to say, well, could a, a sewage treatment plant, for instance, pay a farmer to reduce pollution if that was more cost-effective? And so this lawsuit actually questions, well, under the Clean Water Act, is that legal? Are there mechanisms that make that legal or illegal? And before trading can really gain traction, I think some of these legal issues do need to be resolved. I can imagine, though, if I were downstream from that uh, sewage plant that doesn't do so well, I wouldn't be very happy if they were getting credit uh, so they could keep on polluting right in my backyard or where I want to fish. Yeah, you got it right on. There are major questions about, you know, if you're trading, are we creating more pollution sources in one place and benefiting some people and making it worse in other areas, creating essentially another version of the hotspot? And if history is any guide, the folks who would get the extra dose of pollution might not have as much money as, as the rest of, uh, of society, might not be uh, the majority uh, ethnicity, environmental justice, in other words. I think environmental justice concerns are something that's brought up regularly in the context of water quality trading is where, who benefits and who, who receives the burden. What do you see as the political threats that the Clean Water Act uh, faces now? The political threats to the Clean Water Act right now over the last couple of years have been pretty fast and furious. There has been really a constant assault on the Clean Water Act, primarily from the House of Representatives, um, and we've seen attacks on the actual fundamental structure of the Clean Water Act. Um, there was one legislative proposal that would have actually sort of basically removed the Environmental Protection Agency's authority to veto, for example, the very, very worst permits that threaten fish and wildlife. Um, in public health. And this is a veto power, you know, that's been used 13 times over the last 40 years, so it's very seldomly used, but somehow we're trying to strip those sort of important backstops out of the Clean Water Act. 
And then in the budget process, we've seen riders' attempts to basically stop the Environmental Protection Agency from doing their job in a number of ways, um, for example, trying to clarify the scope of the Clean Water Act, and also rollbacks to very specific provisions, so trying to stop funding for the Chesapeake Bay cleanup plan, which has been a long time in the making, um, and a lot of support for that, as well as a number of other specific provisions. So um, it's been a little disheartening, I would say, given how much support there is for clean water across the country, that we're still seeing these sort of efforts, um, renewed efforts to uh, weaken our clean water protections, when really at the 40th anniversary, we need to be moving forward, not backward. I guess I just think of it in really as in a personal way. I'm a parent, as many people are, and you know, my daughter's at that age, she's eight, and she just loves to swim, can't get her out of the water once she's in. And I think about how, you know, along with millions of other Americans, we live very close to a river in our hometown, but we can't swim there. It's not clean enough. And really, that's the vision of the Clean Water Act, is that all of us, you know, my daughter, everyone else's children, their dogs, their friends, that where you are, that the waters are safe enough and clean enough to swim, to fish, and so forth. And so that vision is really important, and we're not there yet, but certainly we're much closer than we were. And so I think that's the the important part of the Clean Water Act that's really worth protecting and fighting for. Your daughter's eight. Um, What are you looking forward to when she turns 48 in the next 40 years for the Clean Water Act? I would love it if, if um, my daughter, by the time she's 48, and she, you know, surely she'll still be hopefully swimming and um, enjoying rivers, that the Clean Water Act would not only sort of address some of the very obvious gaps like agricultural pollution, but it would also be trying to figure out, well, what are the threats of the future? And they may include things like emergency contaminants that you just mentioned, but also are there ways to take a more comprehensive approach to our environment? And so I think about, for example, that we have laws for air quality and water quality, drinking water that are separate right now, but many of these things are are really connected as environmental systems. So if a city, for example, planted trees to reduce stormwater runoff, but there also is a co-benefit for air quality, should we be thinking of those more in systems? And similarly, um, do we get energy efficiency benefits by using a green roof and also reducing sewer overflows and flooding. So I think there are a lot of um, more comprehensive approaches and sort of areas of innovation that are untapped right now. And so trying to better reuse water and capture energy from wastewater and a lot of emerging technologies that we can better incorporate into our um, regulatory and policy systems as we move forward. And so I hope that when my daughter is 48, that she will be living in a world that sort of has a very smart and comprehensive approach to clean water and one where she and possibly her children will be swimming in clean water wherever they live. Catherine Bear, Senior Director of Clean Water Programs at American Rivers. Thank you so much, Catherine. Thank you for having me. And Ashley, that brings us to the end of our special program in partnership with EarthFix. It's been great to have you back on Living on Earth. It's been great to have a chance to work together again, Steve. On the next Living on Earth, a look back at the environmental successes of 2012. We're seeing a lot of movement that I thought was improbable on creating large marine protected areas and shark sanctuaries. The good, the bad, and the hopeful for 2013. That's next time on Living on Earth.
on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Today's special broadcast about the 40th anniversary of the Clean Water Act was produced in cooperation with EarthFix Public Media in the Northwest. EarthFix includes KUOW in Seattle, Oregon Public Broadcasting, Northwest Public Radio, and Boise State Public Radio. Special thanks to Molly Williams, David Steves, and Tony Tabora Roberts. We also had help from Investigate West. Support for EarthFix comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Go to earthfix.info to find out more. Living on Earth crew includes Bobby Bascom, Emmett Fitzgerald, Helen Palmer, Annie Sneed, James Kerwood, Megan Miner, and Gabriella Romano. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and check out our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Ashley Ahern. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. Stonyfield invites you to Just Eat Organic for a Day. Details at JustEatOrganic.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Go Forward Fund and Pax World Mutual and Exchange Traded Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at PaxWorld.com. PaxWorld for tomorrow. PRI Public Radio International.